and welcome to the next episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking and film theory. In each episode we focus on a particular movie, we talk about it, review it, discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And we'll always end with uh, recommendations for films to watch based on this week's film, either thematically or related to actors and directors, as close or as tenuous as we want. Obviously, who are we and why should you care? At this point, we are 40 episodes in, so you should know who I am. My name's Rob. I make films and make content, I suppose. He's Sam Knowles. He writes about content, writes about films, writes about and teaches about culture in all its multitude of forms. And this week, Rob, it was your choice. It was my choice, and we've gone a little more international than we often do, and we've gone for the 2015 film... The Assassin. The Assassin, I'm not going to try and give it its original uh, Chinese name because I feel I'm going to brutally massacre that name. Um, right. But we'll stick it in the show notes. But I believe I believe it's Ni Yen Niang, but I probably completely brutalised that. It is right. from director Hao Shin, and it essentially tells the story of a Chinese assassin, Chinese assassin in the 7th century who is a very effective and very dedicated killing machine who fails in one of her missions and so as a punishment is sent to kill one of her a person from her past let's say who now rules a uh, a distant province and i think that's probably all i'm really going to say about the plot in terms of it um sam your thoughts interesting you should say that's what you going to say about plot because I'm not sure what the plot was yes (laughs) Um, and I've heard the director talking about um, why he makes films and what he feels is important about a film and he's dismissed the idea of plot as as, uh, not something particularly central and it's all about the spectacle and visual poetry is a phrase he uses um, but I just didn't get it. Okay. Um, I don't know. This this may be a failing in me. I'm particularly tired at the moment, and it, it took me a while to get into the film. Um, and I don't know. Yes, I don't know whether that was down to the film taking a while to build or me taking a while. Um, taking a while to concentrate on plot development. It just, I just didn't get into it. Um, and we've talked talked about this before. Um, we talked about with with Foxcatcher. There are long scenes here with not much happening. Um, and when we talked about Foxcatcher, we said if you were on board with a film like this, then it was great. And if not, then it just leaves you behind a bit. Yes. And that's where it, that's where I felt with this film. Um, I thought it, it looked 
it looked beautiful. Um, the movement was particularly good, whether that was Yin Yang's movement through the trees in the forest or dropping down through windows, for example, or the choreography of the, of the fight scenes. They were brilliant. Um, so it, yeah, I, I I can see see how it, it was it was poetry to look at. It was something beautiful to look at. Um, I just didn't quite get it. That's fine. I think for me, I kind of suspected this might be where we'd end up with this conversation mm. because whilst it's in no way a similar film, the viewing experience of this did remind me quite a bit of one of our early contentious films of Mad Max. Okay. In which that the spectacle of cinema is the thing that trumps all in mm. these films. Mad Max, the pl- plot essentially is paper thin. They drive somewhere, they drive back. Yeah. But it's all about a visual experience, and that is very much a you know heart stopping, edgier seat ride of a film. But it's all about the visual spectacle. Whereas the Assassin, I think, has done the same thing. It's all about spectacle. It's all about these beautiful visual images and this sort of staid motion, but at the cost of a plot that isn't overly engaging, I suppose. You're supposed to buy into the world and become immersed in the beautiful costumes and sets and locations rather than be entranced by the character development. If that makes sense, mm, yeah. And I, I mean, I my review would certainly put it on much more on the positive spin than you've put on it. But I will say there were scenes when I'm like, move on a little bit now, you know. That there were certainly scenes that I felt dragged on um, and could have been shorter. I mean, it's it's a thing we say regularly in this film, but the film could have been half an hour shorter. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think it could have been shorter and still kept its beauty. And I do think, from my point of view, it was beautiful it was one of it's visually one of the most stunning films i've seen in quite a while and i think it's got a lot of plaudits for that and it deserves applause for that i think some of the locations especially the sort of the the woodland scene with the the silver birch trees the roof the the, the, um, mountaintop scene in which she meets her old master and the sort of this mist comes out of nowhere Mm. i think there's some wonderful visual elements and obviously I'll just know my background is in film visuals, so for me it was like it was it was visual porn in many ways. And I particularly love the scene of the uh, the Weibo court, Weibo women, uh, Weibo yeah, court, Weibo court, yeah. when the the ruler's sitting there with his advisor. It's just everything's so sumptuous. I think you hit on moving beyond good and bad. Let's say movement was a big thing that I noted in this film that the the camera is almost always slightly moving. Mm. And almost every shot in the background has blowing curtains or blowing um, drapes. Yes, I noticed that actually. There was a ostensibly very still scene. There's a dialogue. It's kind of a monologue, really. I mean, Yang's in in the scene, but she doesn't talk. Um, it takes place over over a tea table, um, and. Nothing much really happens with the camera mm-hmm. while this while the speech is going on, but you feel like there's someone behind the camera. It was moving very slightly, kind of like a person would. It just felt like someone breathing. 
Yes. It was that very slight movement to the camera. So I know what you mean. I think that there's the, the, the two big look at my notes here. The two big notes I made was say with movement and depth, and mm. I'm obviously in recent years 3D films have come back to the fore a little bit. Um, it, it'd, be, it'd be possible these days to avoid 3D, and I think some good, some bad. But the 3D effect, the stereoscopic 3D that we've seen in cinemas, is a certain effect of a certain way. But this film felt like it had depth without being. 3D. So many of the shots you had, like foreground, background, mid-ground, or in different rooms going back and forth, the different levels of a scene. Maybe we were looking at the action through a um, through a curtain, or the, the main action behind that something happening. It felt to me like this film had a great amount of depth behind the screen, mm. and 3D without being... 3D, shall we say that being stereoscopic 3D in the same way that a lot of films are, it felt like it had a real kind of 3D world presented to us. It felt like it was doing what a lot of 3D films try to do, mm. and I, I saw, I saw one of the Hobbit. It must have been the first one because I, I gave up after that. So the first Hobbit film, I saw that in 3D, and it, I didn't feel like the 3D ever added anything to it. Um, didn't feel like it achieved anything that felt to have that felt like it had that depth to it. Whereas that that's something about this film, definitely. As a quick tangent, do you want to know the main reason why three D is being pushed so hard these days? Yes. Piracy. It go on. Piracy is a very large concern in Hollywood. Obviously, um, films, torrented films are put out there. Films are released, and mm. so that's eating into the profits. 3D films are incredibly hard to pirate. Traditionally, if you want to pirate a cinema film, you sneak a camera in, you put it on your chest, and you film the film. You get they're called, they're called cams, and someone's filmed the film in a cinema, yeah. and they can release that online. You can't do that with 3D, or well, you can, but you two cameras, one with different lenses in each one. It's far more complex. Far more, you can't pirate a 3D film. Oh, right. So that cuts down on the pirated films. And they can charge more for it. So the, I mean, there are people certainly doing good things in 3D. Like there, there are some good 3D films out there. But the overarching industry push for it is a, is a, a anti-piracy push. Mm. Um, I used to do this for a living. I talk for hours. But I think what well, this is where I mean, this is when we get into kind of a bit more technical knowledge. One of the ways to make 3D work, excuse me, is to treat the cinema screen like a proscenium arch theatre rather than mm. anything else. So the idea being that as a 3D viewer, you are looking into a room. So that the screen is looking in. Everything, every bit of 3D sits behind the screen. Mm. So you, you're looking at almost akin to a play rather than a schlocky film where a, a spear comes up towards you. And those moments are ones that you kind of they will oh you know the same in front of me that will work but it after a while gets tiresome and hurts the eye and hurts the head. The way to get successful 3D is to treat the screen itself as a flat image behind which action takes place, which is why I think this films like films like 3D because you always feel that you're looking in on a room, you're looking in on a box, 
mm. um, in which action takes place. Actually, I'm, I'm intrigued. You talked about looking into rooms. Um, well, there, there are a couple of films out recently, and I would like to see them both, I suspect. I haven't got the, the time to see more than one. But one of them is uh, The Jungle Book. I'm intrigued to see what they do. Having, I saw the trailer for the first time and, and swore at the screen and thought, how dare you do this after 1967 animation. Hmm. Um, but it would be interesting to see what they've done there. I think 3D is a big part of that. And the other one, the thing about looking into rooms, there is a film called um, Eye in the Sky out recently um, about uh, various takes on a drone strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and that appears to be about looking into rooms and the way they... I mean, nothing really happens in it because the point is that you're waiting for a drone strike to happen. Yes. So that you look into all these all these different rooms... Well, I think that, that that's almost pulls so full of back to this is that the the film all the way through is building up to this kind of conflict between the assassin and her and her ex betrothed, but it does feel like you feel like you're building towards this moment for the entire film. Mm. Uh, I think it 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 did it. This is where I'm saying you can't buy into the film. Like either you'll enjoy that journey or you're like I'm bored now. Show me that. If you see what I'm saying. Mm. You can um, t- spoilers will will come along now. Um, you can clear this up for me. Why did it matter that his wife was pregnant? I don't know. Right. Um, I I will say now. I'm I'm not going to say I'm the most intuitive person in the world, but there there are parts of this plot that I don't understand. Right. Um, Good. For me, I'm okay with that because I'm all about the journey and the experience of watching the film. Um, I don't need to know all the whys and wherefores, but I don't know. Um, th- there is obviously there's a a caveat on all of the discussion is that we are obviously watching a translated version of this film. Yeah. So, and the film is based on a traditional Chinese proverb story of the time. Yes. So there is, and this is something I want to talk about a little bit more, and this is where I kind of want to more of Sam's input of mine is that I think there is a Western cultural experience of this film that is different to a a Chinese cultural experience of this film. Because mm. we, we don't have the historical or the cultural knowledge of the story and we are listening to or listening to a translation or reading a translation of a of a script that would have nuance to a Chinese audience that we aren't going to get. Mm. I think, well they, there are a couple of things there. One is that this is written in the ninth century, the original, but it's about um, a dynasty from two hundred years before that. Um, so there is an extent to which this is a historical document, even when it was written. Um, and there's also the fact that, and I, I don't know enough about Chinese history, um, but it seemed to me that the relationship between the areas was very important mm. or the relationship between say the Weibo clan and if clan's the right word and the imperial court um, and that's something I don't know enough about and say I don't know enough about Chinese history but that seems to me very important and that seems to be something that 
if you were and maybe not even an expert in this area but just someone brought up on on chinese chinese history of the time then you'd know more about this mm. I, I think that whilst um i mean that there are there is a kind of a western tourism of, of chinese cinema particularly and i think there are certain films that are made in china but are kind of made for a for a western audience or they have a, a view on that whereas this film felt very much like it was made for a chinese audience and it's had some success outside of it um but it wasn't very much this is this isn't a film for my culture no um it, it doesn't care to include me in its stories or or its history or its nuance you know i i have to infer i mean there's a, a little bit of preamble at the start um some some sort of some titles telling me a bit of backstory but i just have to infer a lot of other other things mm. yeah it, it's and i think then we go back to this question in mind like why would why was it relevant that she was pregnant well what why am why should i ask that like what what right do i have to know that information mm. you shouldn't yeah is is this something accessible to me as as a Western viewer? And it's it's interesting you say that because this is this did feel like a a Chinese or Taiwanese film for um, a Taiwanese audience, and not necessarily it was like you say it was it wasn't pandering to to the Western market at all. And that's something that you see or you hear in in interviews with the director, um, who is. And he will he will speak through a translator, but even even when he's speaking through a translator, his his body language in interviews is very much okay. I I don't have to give you this information. I mean, you can you can pull it out of me if you want, but your your Western cinema doesn't necessarily interest me. And I think that's that's a really good thing. Exactly, I think that that's we are we are tourists in this world, as I said. Um, and I think that there's, there are things we found in here for for a Western audience, but I think we always have to keep an eye on the fact that we are viewing this from a Western point of view and with Western expectations. I mean, the idea, the very first thing we talked about in this podcast was was the plot, the plot lightness of the film. But that is because we come into come at this with a very, you know, three act structure, hero's journey idea of film. And whilst mm. you and I certainly, I feel can look at films beyond that and we do see films beyond that kind of rigid structure though that is the story in which we are raised those are the narratives that our culture presents to us through almost all our lives and you're certainly better read than i am um but i, I think i'm better watched than you are let's say oh uh, yeah um but both i mean, I mean both admit that we, we we the lion's share of that buys into traditional narrative and so mm. when we approach a film like this that just doesn't play by those rules, I think it can be a very interesting experience. Whether that's one we what we like and accept or reject, that's, you know, a, a noble thing. I mean, my, just to digress for a moment here, one of my big passions is kaiju films. As anyone follows my Twitter know, I love a, a monster movie. And there's a great disconnect between the original Godzilla film and the American remake because they are very very different narrative structures the American remake is much more hero saves the day 
American big win does everything. The Chinese mm. one is much more a, a meditation on nuclear destruction, on the effect of one man versus the collective. And to a Western audience, particularly a modern Western audience, the original Godzilla film becomes very dull and very staid because it isn't that kind of film that we are used to expecting. We are used to a 90-minute, two-hour action films. And so it's kind of... I think we have to kind of, as Western viewers, look at these things with a with our eyes. We have to appreciate it from where we are, but also with a caveat in our minds of we are coming at this with our own expectations of what a film, in, in, in quotations, should be. Mm. I think often, I mean, often the most successful films then are films that combine the two and you think of something hugely successful and we talked at a great length about it on this podcast but something like the original Star Wars I mean Lucas is is steeped in Kurosawa so he he's not just it's not just a simple hero's journey there are times and particularly in, in A New Hope where you have uh, droids wandering to, through the desert. There's a very different pace to it. Um, so, I mean, some of the, the most successful films have been films which combine this idea of Western plot-driven narrative with with ideas from other cultures about how films should be. Exactly. I think, I think there's... It's kind of that 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 sort of I don't know how to explain it, but there's a and I hate I I I there's a better term for it than this, but there is a certain element of the mystic orient. Um in certain ways people look at it, oh you know, they are interesting, they are kind of different ways of doing films. And people can take from that and make it what it wants. But I think there's a small part of film viewing that we can that there's a I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but I kind of a a voyeuristic zoo-like desire to watch these films from another area it's um it's, it's that word orient and the and the the adjective around viewing viewing people through this this zoo-like lens is mm. orientalism so you've taken this this culture and made a spectacle out of it you've made an eastern spectacle out of it and it was it was a binary set up um, in I suppose in the early days of going back to a word that you mentioned earlier, tourism. Um, but in the early, early days of of the the Westerner travelling, it was sort of in from the fifteenth century onwards. There was a there's a dichotomy between the Occident and the Orient, the West and the East, and the the civilized West and as you said, the the mystic East that was somewhere that you travelled to to inspect and view as as another and that and other uh, that process of othering is is something that's integral to the western experience of the east certainly up until um until fairly late into the 20th century so that that's something that you're right we we have to be careful about um certainly when when we as as westerners view Eastern cinema, but Rob, um, yes. recommendations. Recommendations. You go so first. It, it's 
it's kind of hard to recommend a film like this because I must hold my hand and say I'm not overly steeped in the in this the uh, Chinese film tradition or mm. in in the wushu genre this this prescribed to be part of. So I'm gonna be very scattershot here. I'm gonna go for the 1973 film Enter the Dragon. The martial arts in this assassin was impressive. Whilst it's wushu, so it's all wire work. There's certainly a lot of very well choreographed and well planned out fight scenes in that, and it was reminiscent to me of Enter the Dragon, which was probably the first martial arts film I saw growing up, and certainly one of the biggest sort of Western takes on a um, on, on a um, non-Western storyline. Bruce Lee um, at certainly his peak. Mm. I just think it's if you haven't seen it, then you really, really should. Um, I think it's he's, it, he's he's a really interesting going back to this idea of orientalizing and the coming together of West and East. Bruce Lee is a fascinating figure to spend an hour Wikipedia doing. If you, if you like that sort of thing, precisely. And I, I think it's whilst it is hey, we have touched on Westernization of. Of, of Chinese and uh, Eastern cinema, um, but I do think this is a, a great example. My other exa- other recommendation is a very, 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 very left field decision, um, and that is the 2002 film from Luc Besson, The Transporter, okay. starring Jason Statham. The main reason for the recommendation here is is that the uh, Tian Yang, uh, not Tian Yang, uh, Ni Yang, the um, assassin from the assassin, plays the female love interest in the transporter. Oh, in one of her, her few mainstream Western roles. The transporter is it is dumb action film, but it is Statham at his best, and Statham when at his best is a very good martial artist. And I think that I would ignore the latter top of sequels. They aren't worth touching with a barge pole, but the no. first one is a very interesting film um, and a very a good um, action film. And I think at this point in the podcast, we can happily say that there are good action films, and this is one of them. And it kind of it gets lost sometimes in the same bucket as the Fast and the Furious films and that kind of thing. But the original Transporter is is worth a watch. Jason Satan is surprisingly good in that. Yes, my films this week. Uh, I struggled really. Um, I've gone for one particularly obvious and one not so obvious. Um, and after all we've said about cultural tourism, I'm not sure um, about recommending this, but I will say that um, this film is not the 2004 House of Flying Daggers. Um, but I do feel in some ways that was an introduction to certain areas of Eastern cinema for a, a great swathe of, of people in the West. Um, and maybe that introduction has allowed films like this to be made. So it's my first recommendation, House of Flying Daggers. Okay. Um, and my second one... Um, it's a long way before that and a slightly different nationality but it is someone that I've mentioned already today um, and it's brought to mind by the pacing 
and the visuals are two things that we've we've talked about certainly the visual aspect of of the trees in the forest um and it's kurosawa's seven samurai or maybe kurosawa's throne of bloods it's a version of macbeth that kurosawa did um and kurosawa was taking the the story of macbeth and transposing it to a different cultural environment but I think, as I said, that there's lots about the the visually stunning way that that's told that uh, speaks a lot to the assassin. Fair enough, fair enough. So, Sam, next week, your choice. Yes, I feel we've been a bit too serious recently. Um, so my choice for next week is uh, last year's Big Hero 6. Excellent choice, excellent choice. And we're keeping with the... Uh, a slight eastern theme there as well. Oh yes, yeah, but but definitely not as as uh, serious and high-mindedly artistic as the assassin. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah. Lovely guys. Well, if you want to uh, come find us and talk about these films, you can find us both on Twitter. I'm Rob Kaiju, and I am Life Underscore Academic. Or you can find both of us at the Prestige Podcast. And we will see you next week for. Talk about Big Hero 6. See ya. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.